Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. I also have a blog that you can check out. Uh, You can find that at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is Wednesday. January 26th, 2022, and we are beginning our discussion of what the POW-5 football interests are going to do with their newfound authorities under this constitutional makeover, and that's going to run through this Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee. And that's why I thought it was important to do an episode on that interview, the social series podcast interview with Greg Sankey, Commissioner of the SEC, and Julie Cromer, the Athletics Director at Ohio University, who are the co-chairs of this Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee, because that was the first peek into where the work of this committee may be headed. And my intention going forward as we're analyzing this transformation committee is to put it into perspective historically through the lens of the aggregation of the powerful football interests. And that in many ways is going to be a history lesson. And it's really interesting, particularly when the powerful football interests start to reorganize the market after Board of Regents and they come together. And I talked about these hearings in 1997. There were a round of hearings in the Senate where the football interests were basically hauled before Congress to explain themselves. And there was this beginning of the aggregation of power for the haves and then this battle by the have-nots to try to have a seat at the table. And that ran through antitrust concerns that were uh, brought out in these 1997 hearings. I'm going to talk a lot about that. And then there were some more hearings in 2003 that went to the same issue. But it's important to understand that background, to understand the way that the big-time power football interests think about their place in college sports. And that's essential to an understanding of what has just happened in the Power Five's power grab at the regulatory level through the work of this Constitution Committee. But I really want to focus or refocus on what the most essential next step is going to be for the Power Five, and and that is going back to Congress to get the very federal protections and immunities that the NCAA tried to get in 2019. And the reason that's so important is that it's easy to forget what has happened since the summer of 2021. And that interview really brought that up in my mind because I think Sankey and Cromer were trying to rewrite history a little bit here and suggesting that some of those issues really weren't the driving force in in this constitutional makeover. And information moves so quickly now, and there's so much of it, that it's very difficult to think back to what it was really like in the, the summer of 2020. 21, and then after the NCAA failed in its last-ditch attempt at preemption in June, and then we had the Austin decision, and then the NCAA didn't have a viable plan to try to stop these state laws from going into place, and we had the nil dump at the feet of the institutions, it's really easy to forget what Mark Emmert and the NCAA 
and then Robert Gates, and then the Power Five were saying throughout that timeline. And the NCAA and Power Five and all the spin meisters out in the media, mainstream and sports media, are so good at subtly shifting the narrative that sometimes you lose sight of where we were just a few months ago. And I found myself guilty of that as well. So I went back to that time frame when I was really covering the events as they unfolded leading up to this July 1st witching hour that was going to be the, the end of college sports as we knew them because these state laws were going to go into effect. And then seven hours and 40 minutes before July 1st, Mark Emmert and the NCAA dump all their nil garbage at the feet of the institutions and then immediately claim victory. And so I, I went back and, and looked at the episodes leading up to that July 1st deadline. And I pretty much was on target, I think, in identifying the issues and talking about what was likely to happen next. And I really landed with the NCAA and Power Five's re-engagement with Congress. Now, this was before the announcement of this Constitution Committee on July 30th of 2021 by Bob Gates, when he, for the first time, was speaking in terms of the NCAA being in a battle for relevance. And that's what the charter of the Constitution Committee says. But back when I was talking about this transition phase into the new nil market, the unintended nil market, I was speaking in terms of the NCAA's relevance. And that was pretty obvious to me. And I think it was obvious to anyone who was paying close attention. So I just want to identify a few of these episodes. You can go back and check them out if you want. And uh, this, these are post-Austin. So Austin was June 21st of 2021. And then you had, before that, the week before that, you had the NCAA and these June hearings on, on its knees, begging for preemption. And, and uh, Jerry Moran, a Republican from Kansas, who's been carrying the NCAA's water throughout the Senate campaign since 2019, he went to the floor of the full Senate to make the case for his bill, which has a broad preemption provision. And he was begging them to do something and do something before this July 1st deadline. So that was an important time frame. And then uh, they didn't get it done. And then you had the Austin decision. And that was really the nail in the coffin. I've, I've talked a bit about that. But on June 30th, I did an episode uh, the day before the state nail laws are supposed to go into effect. I did an episode, episode 33, titled the NCAA's Rapidly Diminishing Relevance. And I, I talk about how the NCAA basically played every card that it had in June. And they just lost. <laughs> Their hand got progressively bad over the course of that month. And by June 30th, they had nothing. They had absolutely nothing. And then on July 3rd, uh, I did episode 34, Mark Emmert saves the day because right after the NCAA caved on voluntary rulemaking and went with this interim policy, which did not change a single word of a single rule of NCAA legislation relating to name, image, and likeness, Mark Emmert goes out there and goes on a charm offensive on the dime of the NCAA national office to make it appear as if he saved the day. He came in at the last minute and now these nil opportunities were wouldn't exist but for Mark Emmert. And then I did an episode on July 7th, early after this failure in, in the Senate and, and after the 
uh, Austin decision. It's episode 36 titled, Are Power Five Conferences Prepping for New and Improved Senate Campaign? And I started talking about how the NCAA and the Power Five had no choice but to keep going back to Congress because they weren't going to be able to do anything they wanted to do unless they were completely immunized from any pressure from external regulatory threats like state legislatures and federal courts. So the Power Five, I predicted, were going to be taken over this campaign in the Senate. And I talked in some detail about the dynamics in the Senate at that time and how the Power Five might position itself politically to try to re-engage Congress, uh, particularly the Senate, to try to get one or more of the things that the uh, NCAA was leading the charge on in 2019, 2020, and most of 2020. 21. And then on July 19th, 2021, I did episode 40 titled The NCAA's Ministry of Truth Strikes Again. Mark Emmert flushes 70 years of NCAA history down the memory hole. And I started to talk in a uh, little more detail about the uh, propaganda component of the NCAA's repositioning. And this was at a time when it was clear that Mark Emmert was on a personal rehabilitation campaign. And there was a makeover of the NCAA website. The NCAA brought in this uh, sidearm sports outfit, which is a division of Learfield Sports, which is ubiquitous in sports uh, marketing, and they do a lot of websites. And it was a much better website, I will say that. But Mark Emmert was everywhere. You couldn't go to a single page from the Gateway page, a link from the Gateway page, without seeing the same photo of Mark Emmert smiling, walking across the stage with a humble pose, but he's looking like he's doing the, the victory walk. They have abandoned that, and, and I think that was a failed effort by Emmert to try to make it look like he was the savior of college sports, and he's responsible for all these wonderful name, image, and likeness opportunities. And then something ha happened that people aren't even talking about anymore, but I think this was really important in this crucial time frame between June 30th and July 30th, you had the SEC picking up Texas and Oklahoma and taking them from the Big 12. And that was a huge story there for a while. But I don't think that event was completely divorced from the events that played out soon thereafter, including on July 30th, the announcement by Bob Gates that he was heading up this Constitution Committee that was going to look at a complete overhaul of college sports. And what does that what did that turn out to be? It turned out to be a power five power play led by the SEC. So, I mean, there's some interesting dots to connect there. And Sankey was a very cagey in how he characterized that crucial time frame and trying to suggest that it really wasn't about the Austin case or in any single event. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff going on, but it was stuff he wasn't mentioning specifically. And all of it went to the acquisition of power for power or five football interests, and you can make the case that there was an emphasis on the SEC's interests. But why it's important to talk about that before we get into looking at these hearings, these, these football-related hearings going back to the 1990s, is that everything that occurs from this point forward is going to be run through a single primary lens. And that is, how is whatever we do, whatever we say, from the perspective of the Power Five football interests and the work of this transformation committee, how does that look to the United States Senate? In particular, 
How does that look to the Senate Commerce Committee? And how does that look to individual members of that committee, regardless of their party? And again, there are just so many moving parts to this, but and I'm going to talk about them in more detail as we are breaking down the, the work of this transformation committee. But again, everything is going to run through a political lens. And there's going to be an emphasis, I think, on a pitch to moderate female Democrat senators. But I think what we're going to see is a very carefully crafted, very carefully targeted political campaign and lobbying campaign and public relations campaign directed to that singular purpose. I think I may have mentioned this in one of my episodes back in July of 2021 in my discussions about what was happening at the time in the Senate. But I think when the NCAA and to a lesser extent, the Power Five were trying to get this last ditch attempt for preemption. And then I think this also came through in that September hearing in the House. House, the, the persuasion campaign didn't have a whole heck of a lot to do with public opinion. It was influencing the opinions of the individual senators. And while we're going to be getting these self-serving updates, no doubt, through the NCAA website on the work of the Transformation Committee, you can rest assured that the most important work is going on invisibly behind the scenes in closed-door meetings between the NCAA and Power Five lobbyists and the individual senators on the Commerce Committee and then maybe some more out in the, the general Senate membership that the Power Five think they need in order to get what they want in terms of federal protections and immunities. I made the point when this Constitution Committee was formed and several times thereafter, but it's even more true now that we know that the Constitution has been ratified. We know that the Transformation Committee is driving the train and that it is a Power Five football show. That the biggest challenge now for the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries is to re restructure and rebrand their campaign in Congress. And I think they've got their work cut out for them. And there's some big hurdles that they face on the backside of the failed campaign led by the NCAA National Office and Mark Emmert and, and Don Remy going back to 2019. And they're going to have to show that this really is a new NCAA. And they're going to have to argue, I think, and it's going to be a, a tough argument that basically the NCAA is really not making these decisions. It's the, the the divisions making these decisions, but they're still doing it under the NCAA umbrella. So one way or another, any protections or immunities that the Power Five tries to get are going to wind up residing in any federal legislation under the NCAA umbrella and running through the NCAA. The divisions aren't separate entities. They are not separate nonprofits. They don't have any independent standing to go and seek relief from Congress. I guess the conferences could try to do that, but that's not the way this power play was structured. It's a power five power play, but it's being done under the NCAA umbrella through the divisional structure and any federal congressional relief, the protections and immunities that would basically immunize the business model from external regulatory control or threat. Those things 
have to be owned by the NCAA. They can't be owned by the divisions. The NCAA is the institution. It's the legal entity, not the divisions. But the propaganda is really important here. And so what I want to stress as we're looking at the work of this transformation committee is that everything, everything that's going to happen going forward is going to run through the political lens with a target audience, and those are United States senators on the Commerce Committee, particularly the female senators. And in these gloom and doom, fear-mongering scenarios that have been portrayed by the NCAA and Power Five lobbyists, that if we don't get control of this marketplace through federal protections and immunities, then women and non-revenue athletes are going to be victims and their participation opportunities are going to be at risk. And it's going to be a huge step backwards for the rights of women and the rights of the Olympic sports athletes. That's how they've positioned themselves. That could not be further from the truth. And I've, I've talked at length about that. But that's the kind of messaging that you're going to see from the lobbyists and you're going to see whatever comes out from the NCAA machine, and they're still acting as a propagandist. And remember, the NCAA has a very efficient, effective, and sophisticated campaign run by not just its lobbyists, but its uh, highly compensated public relations firms, these outside firms that are dedicated to manipulating the message for political purposes and for business purposes. But the Power Five now get the benefit of that megaphone. And again, the Power Five football interests aren't paying for those expenses. And this goes back to what the Knight Commission was trying to say in that op-ed on January 13th, that the big-time football interests get a free ride because they don't use their football money to chip in for these association-wide expenses. And that includes the tens of millions of dollars that the NCAA pays to its outside media consultants and to these website designers. So the Power Five have this built-in machine that helps them manipulate the messages that they need to get in front of the United States Senate. And again, that's the sole audience right now. The extent of the lobbying efforts is just breathtaking. And it's not underreported, it's unreported. There, there are all these discussions about, oh, yeah, well, they're not talking about the, the CFP honestly and how much money's running through the powerful football interests. And that's true. That's underreported, not unreported. But the lobbying activity is unreported. And it's one of the great unreported stories of our generation. I, I'll say that again and again. And that's why one of the places I'm going to land with this is that the NCAA and, and Brownstein Hyatt and the Power Five and all of their lobbying firms, and there are a lot of them. I haven't done a total count on the total number of firms and, and lobbyists, but it is substantial. And one of my recommendations is going to be that before the United States Congress considers a single piece of legislation that they make available, that the NCAA and Power Five make available all of the lobbying materials that they have presented to Congress, all the communications between the Power Five conference interests and the NCAA and their respective lobbyists. And let's see if what the NCAA and the Power Five are seeking in Congress is designed to promote athlete well-being and athlete interests and nil compensation and all these 
smoke screens that they've put up when lurking behind them, if you actually read the bills, is a power play of unprecedented proportions. And these quests for uh, federal preemption and complete antitrust immunity and eliminating the possibility that athletes could be deemed employees all in one fell swoop. And there hasn't been an honest discussion about that. But what's happening right now through the propaganda machine, the NCAA, that the Power Five is now going to be the primary beneficiary of is really interesting. I picked up on that shift in messaging back in late June. It started initially, as I mentioned earlier, with Mark Emmert trying to use the NCAA outlet and its media center to try to rehabilitate his image. And I, I did screenshots of some of all of the things that the NCAA prioritized since that that fateful month of, of June of 2021. And one of the propaganda techniques is that they will have a very broad theme that they use for weeks, if necessary, to try to pound in the narrative. And so I, I'm just going to go through a few of these so you can see what I'm, I'm talking about and why it's kind consequential in terms of the Power Five's re-engagement with the Senate on the backside of this constitutional makeover, because they're going to take advantage of all of this messaging. These are not just random pieces of information that the NCAA just puts on its website because it happens to be the issue of the day. This is a carefully manicured campaign designed to create an impression about the institutions and their motivations that is completely at odds with reality. And that's why you do it. That's why you hire lobbyists. That's why you hire the best public relations firms in, in Washington, D.C. That's why you hire the best lawyers on the planet. You hire those people for a purpose. And the purpose of lobbyists and public relations firms is to present whatever image you need to present to get your way to achieve your selfish business interests and to, to continue your status quo. And the NCAA has had a very nice status quo. The Power Five has a very nice status quo. They may be screwing it up through another round of conference realignment, but they had a pretty good thing going. But anyway, in uh, July, the NCAA brought in this sidearm sports outfit and, and they put together a very polished product. Sidearm has been making uh, websites for universities, individual universities and for conferences. And they have a, a, a very sophisticated sophisticated, well-oiled machine. And the presentation is much, much better from a messaging standpoint. So you had this campaign by Emmert in early and mid-July to rehabilitate his personal image. And this picture of Emmert is vaccinating. And I talked about this in one of my episodes. It is just staged to try to convey messages that suggest that Emmert is a trustworthy guy and the colors that they use are specifically selected to elicit trust and reliability. And Emmert is just looking like he is the humble, happy servant doing the righteous work on behalf of student athletes. And this picture, it, it, when it came out, it was on every single link in the NCAA website. You, you couldn't go to any portion of that website without seeing this photo. I really went after Emmert on this. It was just so obvious and it was really comical almost. And then at or about the same time, we had the NCAA 
just going crazy with the propaganda on the Summer Olympic Games, the games in, in Tokyo. And they had images up, Olympic-oriented images and messages up for almost six weeks. And it was just a constant daily assault. And the visuals that they provided were geared, I believe, towards women's sports and, of course, the Olympic sports. We're talking about Olympics. But what's interesting about that emphasis, obviously, American football is not an Olympic sport. So the number one revenue producing sport in American college sports has no connection to the Olympics. And then with the uh, advent of the Dream Team in 1992 and the use of professional athletes for men's basketball, you don't have any college basketball players, men's basketball players qualifying for the Olympic team. So the two college sports products, that underwrite the entire industry of college sports and pay for all of these non-revenue sports and Olympic sports, they can't compete in the Olympics. They just provide the labor that underwrites the Olympic development movement, at least the way that the NCAA pitches it, as I'm going to explain here in a minute. But that didn't stop the NCAA from just propagandizing the heck out of its connection to the Olympics. And when you look at the articles that appeared, here's one. About 75% of the more than 600 athletes on the 2020 Team USA roster for the Tokyo Games come from NCAA institutions of every division. And they, they had photos, for example, of college athletes. They're not in their Olympic uniforms. It's in their college uniforms. And the implication is that but for NCAA non-revenue sports, Olympic sports, we wouldn't be able to field an Olympic team. And I think that's overstated. There's no question, but that a lot of our Olympic training runs through the college sports model. But that raises some interesting questions about whether that's the appropriate model. In most other countries, the government is the sponsor for Olympic development. It doesn't run through the universities. And that's important because in this business model that requires the maximum exploitation of football and men's basketball to fund non-revenue sports, and that's Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model, we have Power 5 football and men's basketball basically supporting our national Olympic program. And that's a huge burden that the Power 5 football and men's basketball players bear. But Olympic-related photos were carefully selected. There was one photo of what looked like a sprinter from Texas A&M, an African-American woman. But that single photo was on the gateway page to the NCAA website for a couple of weeks. And then they rotated in some water polo shots and some other sports that really aren't prominent NCAA sports. And I guess the other thing in that regard is I went back and I looked at the actual sports that were true Olympic sports, then compared them to the sports that the NCAA offers. And the majority of Olympic sports the NCAA doesn't even offer. And a disproportionate number under this quote-unquote athletics category, which is really track and field. You have big numbers there, but in a lot of these other sports, admittedly have smaller rosters for those sports, but a lot of those sports have absolutely nothing to do 
with the NCAA because the NCAA doesn't sponsor those sports. And you sure as hell aren't going to read on the NCAA website that all of these Olympic sport initiatives through NCAA member institutions are underwritten by the labors of uh, Power 5 football and Power 5 men's basketball players. And that's not a convenient narrative for the NCAA because it focuses on the true inequities in the system. And it also doesn't allow the NCAA to claim sole credit for the Olympic development program. And there's obviously a racial issue here as well, because the overwhelming majority of Olympic sport athletes are white, and the overwhelming majority of the high-value revenue-producing athletes in Power 5 football and Power 5 men's basketball are black. So not only are they underwriting the entire college business model, they're underwriting Olympic opportunities for these athletes. And even for some of the sports that the NCAA does sponsor, and by that they have varsity teams and you can award scholarships and, and that kind of thing. But some of those athletes opt out of the NCAA system so that they can focus on training outside of the intercollegiate athletics context. I think that happens a lot in swimming and diving at the highest levels. And then you also have gymnasts, for example. They defer going into college to you know, when they're college eligible so that they can focus on their private training. That's a little bit different because they start so young. But the NCAA wants the free world to know that it is solely responsible for our Olympic pipeline. And this is a big topic, and I'll probably do uh, separate episodes on this because I really didn't get to teasing out this displacement theory that came out in June of 2020 and is reinforced at every turn by these Olympic committees and all these NCAA committees and think tanks that are looking at how to reinforce the Olympic pipeline and avoid losing any revenue that they can use to support that pipeline. But this displacement theory, which you hear in various iterations, even now, even after it got uh, slapped down a little bit. But under this theory, the Olympic interest, they view the revenue from football and men's basketball as essential to their mission to keep the Olympic sport pipeline open, and that any recognition that the revenue-producing athletes have the same economic liberties as any other American is an existential threat to the Olympic movement. And they have been very successful in that. And some of that mentality goes back to this ridiculous formulation of the collegiate model, which requires that the universities that engage in the big-time football, men's basketball sweepstakes, those athletics departments have to be self-sustaining. So all the money for these non-revenue sports, these Olympic sports, they have to get that from uh, football and men's basketball. Heaven forbid that the university itself have to decide independently whether they want to support the Olympic pipeline and the Olympic sports and the Olympic movement. Heaven forbid that these institutions ask the federal government for a subsidy because the service they're providing is a, is a service that's provided by governments in every other country in the world. The NCAA wants the public to believe, and more importantly, the United States Senate to believe, that it is serving this essential role as a pipeline for Olympic development and that it has to remain viable in that role. The NCAA shamelessly claims credit for this, and, and that credit 
to the extent it's appropriate in an Olympic development context, runs through the institutions. They're the ones who provide the training. They're the ones who provide the scholarships. And this gets back to some of the public messaging that the NCAA has gotten away with for a long, long time and claiming credit for things it has absolutely nothing to do with. And I talked about this, this figure that the NCAA throws out about the amount of scholarship money, athletics scholarship money that goes to athletes in NCAA member institutions. And they say it's uh, something like $3.6 billion in, in aid and scholarship money. But what the NCAA doesn't say and just doesn't get called out on is that the NCAA doesn't pay a single penny of athletics scholarships. All of that aid comes from the institutions themselves. And they're not required to offer those scholarships by the NCAA. They choose to. And the NCAA just throws that in. Mark Emmert shamelessly threw that into his congressional testimony. And really going back to 2014, and without the NCAA, there wouldn't be a single athlete getting an athletic scholarship. That's the way that they think about their messaging, and it's just false messaging. So we go from that, from the Mark Emmert rehabilitation campaign, to the Olympic campaign, and they just were all over that. Then we switch to the Paralympic campaign. So following the Olympics, we had the Paralympics. I'm holding here a, a screenshot and a print of, the, of a screenshot from September of 2021. And this was up for weeks. And the suggestion is that the NCAA has a meaningful role in producing Paralympic athletes. There's no other conclusion you could reach. So you have this big font, Paralympians made here, Tokyo 2020. And then the, the tagline, current and former NCAA athletes from all three divisions recently competed at the Paralympic Games in Tokyo. And they have a, a photo of, of a woman with a medal. And it's a nice, feel-good, goose-bumpy theme. But guess what? The NCAA doesn't sponsor a single Paralympic sport. <laughs> it, there have been some people talking about that being the next frontier for the NCAA. It's not going to happen because it is prohibitively expensive. In order to invest in the infrastructure and the equipment that would be necessary for a lot of Paralympic sports, you're looking at massive costs. And the NCAA hasn't gone there. It's not going to go there. But how in the world can it with a straight face create the impression, or actually it's not an impression, make the statement publicly publicly, that they are responsible for developing Paralympic athletes. There are a few institutions that have some programs, and that's done purely at the institutional level. The NCAA doesn't do a thing except claim credit for it. And when the NCAA says Paralympians made here, it's not entirely clear what they're referring to. They can't be referring to Paralympic sports per se, because they don't exist at the structural level in the NCAA. There are a good number of athletes who uh, play on a regular varsity sport that's recognized by the NCAA, who also can qualify for the Paralympics. And the NCAA puts a list of all these athletes on its website. But conflating that with an actual Paralympic program is simply misleading in my judgment. Let's see. What's next? The Olympics, the regular Olympics and the Paralympics, that covered, I don't know, it seemed like it it was six weeks at least. Then we transition into a 
patriotic tribute. Uh, this was a, about a week-long campaign. It was titled Flags for the Fallen. And this happened to coincide with the NCAA really putting Gates out there. And there were some puff pieces. And I have this screenshot. I think this is from September 15th of 2021. This all comes from the Gateway page. When you click on NCAA.com, boom, there you are. And it just, boom, it, it jumps off the screen and it's big and it's bold and it's right there. But it's Flags for the Fallen. And it's it says massive stars and stripes have been displayed at Division II championships for the past five years, including the 20th anniversary of 9-11 on Saturday. So this was a 9-11 tribute, and that's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing. But the image is a big American flag, and just beneath that, you have a picture of Robert Gates with the tagline, Gates brings leadership to Constitution Committee. Now, it's possible that that could have been coincidental. I don't think it was. I don't think anything's coincidental in the way that this website is put together and how its gateway page is presented. And there's no question that Bob Gates is a great American. He doesn't need the NCAA to bolster his credentials and his stature as a great American leader. And I just continually baffled by the fact that the NCAA uses this kind of patriotic appeal. And this is independent of, of Bob Gates, but in this case, it includes him because of his prominent role in this constitutional makeover. But the NCAA uses patriotic themes to suggest that its value system aligns with American values. And the exact opposite is true. But this messaging is so powerful. How do you speak against that? How do you say, wait a minute, NCAA, your serial violation of laws designed to protect basic American freedoms, like economic freedom and economic liberty, and all the things that millions of brave Americans have fought and died for over the course of, of our country's history, disqualifies you from waving around the American flag as if your values are aligned with American values. They are not. And then using this kind of disingenuous messaging as uh, part of your strategy to go to the United States Congress to try to get federal protections and immunities that would make the injustices in your business model a matter of federal law is just unacceptable. And th they're doing it. They're doing it and they're getting away with it. And then we're transitioning into the more detailed work of this Constitution Committee and into November when they released that first draft. And I have this screenshot. I talked about this in some of my earlier episodes, but th that draft came out with this gateway page photo that it, it's a Mount Rushmore-like photo of the three student athletes who served on the Constitution Committee and the gateway title in, in big, bold letters, Voices for Change, Student Athletes. And then they identify the three athletes. There are two women, one from Division Two, one from Division Three, and one man from Division One. And again, I'm, I've talked a little bit about that. But no revenue producing athletes has, is par for the course. But you, you had this elevation. There's like this sense of importance that's attached to the way that this photo is done. And it is powerful. It's powerful as it should be. When you've got the best in the business, you're paying top dollar to get the best in the business to shape your message. Then we're heading into 2022 and we have all the hoopla coming into the convention. And there's a bit of a lull, but we are right back at it now because, let's see, as of yesterday, we have the NCAA all over 
the Title IX train. And remember, this is the 50th anniversary of Title IX. It was passed by Congress in 1972, signed into law by Richard Nixon. And there will be all kinds of celebrations over the course of the year dedicated to Title IX. But this campaign is of particular relevance in terms of what the NCAA and the Power Five want from the Senate. Because Title IX has come up time and time again in these hearings, and you've had female senators from both parties raising Title IX issues. And it's a unifying issue across party lines. And the NCAA Power Five lobbyists have just played that to the hilt by portraying women as victims of any freedoms that are permitted in the marketplace for revenue-producing athletes. And it's an absolutely false narrative. And that narrative is being disproved in real time as this uh, name, image, and likeness marketplace continues to evolve. But the NCAA, they developed their own logo. Yes, the NCAA developed a special Title IX logo that it is going to market and propagandize the ever-living hell out of because that's what it does. This is just a great example of the gap between the message and the reality. The NCAA has been hostile to gender equity rights and to Title IX going back to the first discussions about Title IX in the early 1970s. And that hostility has been consistent. And it was most recently expressed in 2021 during the women's basketball tournament, the Division I women's basketball tournament. You had uh, some photographs that were published by Sedona Prince, a, a big time women's player at Oregon. And she showed the disparities in facilities at the women's tournament versus the men's tournament. And they were two different venues. The women were in San Antonio, the men were in Indianapolis. But the disparities were really shocking. And Sedona Prince got more done in 20 minutes with those uh, photos and social media than the NCAA's committees have gotten done in 50 years. And you had immediate blowback and the NCAA did what it does best. It, it retreated into its inner sanctum to figure out how it was going to respond to this from a public relations standpoint. Because remember, the NCAA has been trying to sell to the United States Senate that this is all about gender equity. This is all about Title IX. And this was not a convenient narrative for them. But it was an honest one. So they decide they're going to have an external review that they're going to control. They hire the Kaplan firm to come in and do a gender equity review. And I did an episode on this Kaplan report, the phase one report that really went to the Division One basketball tournament issues. And then Kaplan was going to do a phase two report that dealt with other sports and other divisions. And I, I really haven't paid that much attention to the phase two report. I read the phase one report with some care and did that in preparation for my episode on that report. And I'd planned to do additional episodes to really break the report down. And I'm not sure if I'm going to do that now because I just think that that report, like so many other gender equity initiatives that the NCAA uses for public relations purposes, has just faded into obscurity. And I'm going to talk a little bit more in a minute here about this Kaplan report. But when you go to the NCAA website now and you go to this gateway page and you have this, this really impressive big photo that has in, in big bold letters Convention Central and they're tying into that the Title IX theme because just below that regal photo 
is the NCAA logo and then this new Title IX logo, and it says 50th anniversary. And in connection with the beginning of the celebration of 50 years of Title IX, the NCAA directs the reader to certain materials and there are links. And when you look at how the information on Title IX is packaged and presented. It is very careful to de-emphasize the, the Kaplan report. In fact, you have to search really hard to actually find a link to the document itself. And it's a long document, and I'm guessing there aren't a lot of people who have read it cover to cover, but it has an executive summary, and you could get a sense of issues in five or six pages. And some of the, the threshold comments in that report were not super flattering for the NCAA when it came to Title IX and its historical relationship to Title IX. So I just thought it was really interesting that it was so difficult to access that report. And I actually had to do it through a link. that It's on the Gateway page, but it says Gender Equity Updates. And there's nothing specific about the Kaplan report. And when you go to that link... You have to go to what's the equivalent of a website footnote to try to find a link to the actual report. But there was an article with a link from the Gateway page today that's titled, NCAA Staff Provides Updates on Gender Equity Reforms for Championships. Now, that is the direct product of the Kaplan Report. So you would expect that in a discussion about these reforms that were recommended by the very firm that the NCAA hired and paid to conduct an external gender equity review would be easily accessible in this article. But in fact, not only is there no link to the Kaplan report, you read this article and you wouldn't know the specific source of these recommendations. Let me just read a little bit from this article. And this is just classic NCAA. During the 2022 NCAA convention, national office staff updated members on the first two phases of reform efforts stemming from recommendations from a 2021 gender equity review of NCAA championships. So that's the first sentence. And it doesn't say from the Kaplan Report. That's no longer in the vocabulary. This is merely a gender equity review, this vaporous review. We're not going to give you a link to it. And it said the update came during the education session, Title IX approaches 50 years, striving for gender equity in intercollegiate athletics. And they talk about some of the things that are being done internally. One of the things about this Kaplan report that I talked about in my episode on it, at least on that first phase, was that one of its fatal flaws, and this is true for so many NCAA initiatives, is that it ran through NCAA insiders. This was an inside job. And when you read the report carefully, it seems to me that the people that they talked to were NCAA insiders, the very people who were responsible for creating the, the mess in the first place. And then there was no recommendation that there be any external accountability for the NCAA. And I've talked about this before. The NCAA can't be held responsible for Title IX violations because it doesn't move federal money. It doesn't have that relationship with the federal money or with the institutions or with the individual athletes. And the United States Supreme Court held so in, in 1999 in the Smith case. 
So there's no meaningful accountability there. But the all these recommendations were left to the NCAA to adopt on their own. And we're just back to the same problem that we've had with the regulation of college sports going back really to the founding of the NCAA. And it's been based on, on trust and trust that the NCAA is going to self-regulate in an intelligent way. And it's going to do it in a way that always has the interests of the athletes first. And that is simply not the case. And it's also important to point out that nowhere is there any discussion about the facts that led to the Kaplan report. There is not a whiff of the Sedona Prince Instagram posts and the photographs that she put up. That just doesn't exist. It's been flushed down the memory hall, as has, for all intents and purposes, the Kaplan Report. So I'm going to start with the Kaplan Report and just go through a little bit of it. And then I'm also going to talk a little bit about some good material in a book that really was a go-to book for me a few years ago when I was kind of reconnecting with these athletes' rights issues. And it's uh, called College Athletes for Hire. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. But this gender equity review, this Kaplan review, this thing is over 100 pages. And then there's a companion report of similar size that really just goes to financial data and market data. And and it makes the case that women's basketball could be a much more valuable product than it has been because the NCAA hasn't really promoted it. And I agree with that. I think that, that there's a lot of untapped potential at the marketing level, at the product level for women's college basketball that simply hasn't been realized. But in the very beginning of this Kaplan report, they lay the foundation for the report and its very purpose. And in the executive summary, in the very first sentence, they go right to the heart of the problem. And they say, on the night of March 18th, 2021, University of Oregon basketball player Sedona Prince posted a video on social media contrasting the spacious room full of assorted barbells and other weightlifting equipment provided to the men's NCAA basketball championship participants with the small single tower of hand weights provided to the women's NCAA championship participants at the start of the NCAA Division I men's and women's basketball tournaments. Like the contemporary equivalent of the shot heard around the world, that video immediately went viral and issues of gender equity at the NCAA took center stage in the news and the public consciousness. While the differences between the experience of male and female players have been significant for years, seeing the student-athletes play in parallel COVID-19 bubbles at the same time this year shined an unprecedented light on those differences for the world to see. Yeah, no wonder. The NCAA doesn't want to make uh, easy access to, to this document because the setup has to acknowledge the NCAA's failure since the 1970s to take Title IX and gender equity seriously. But now it's one of their primary tools in positioning themselves at the legal level and also at the political level. The report goes on to say, indeed, as a result of the Sedona Prince TikTok video, even before the tip-off of the first women's game, Student-athletes, coaches, and the media began a very public, often photographic comparison on social media and elsewhere of the men's and women's tournaments in Indianapolis and San Antonio, respectively. Nearly every time the women's tournament fell short, as NCAA President Mark Emmert later acknowledged, when you lay the men's and women's Division I basketball championships side by side, as has been made clear over the past weeks, 
It is pretty self-evident that we dropped the ball in supporting our women's athletes, and we can't do that. And uh, that is classic Emmert speak. And uh, the translation there is, we have made ignoring gender equity issues a full-time job since the 1970s, and we got caught. The executive summary continues. Although the disparities at this year's Division I Men's and Women's Basketball Championships sparked a wide-ranging public discourse about gender equity within the NCAA, college sports, and sports in general, gender disparity is not something new to any of these areas. The NCAA, for example, did not sponsor a championship for women's basketball or any other women's sports until 1982, more than 75 years after the association was founded. And I'll just throw in there, uh, 10 years after Title IX was passed. And even then, it opposed, ultimately unsuccessfully, the application of Title IX, the federal law prohibiting gender discrimination in educational programs and activities receiving federal funds, to college sports. The NCAA also to date has successfully resisted the application of Title IX to the NCAA itself. And there's a footnote there that cites the Smith decision, this 1999 Supreme Court decision, that said that the NCAA wasn't subject to Title IX liability because it didn't directly move federal funds. The report then talks about some of the prior efforts to deal with gender equity and says that there were some good faith attempts to get this on the radar screen in a meaningful way that would result in meaningful change. And then it says, but while it is true that some progress has been made, all too often, The proposed reforms that came out of these efforts ended up doing no more than sitting on a shelf. With respect to women's basketball, the NCAA has not lived up to its stated commitment to, quote, diversity, inclusion, and gender equity among its student athletes, coaches, and administrators, end quote. And uh, then the report talks about the importance that the NCAA puts on the March Madness contract for Division I men's basketball and that women's basketball has been subordinated to that contract. And there's no question about that. But the report doesn't really talk about the importance of that money to the business model and the fact that it subsidizes all the association-wide expenses. Some of the things that the Knight Commission talked about in that January 13th op-ed article in USA Today. So the uh, report really keeps its analysis between the lines and looks at the just the relationship between the men's and women's basketball products. But it closes out that paragraph with a really important statement. It says, at the same time, the NCAA does not have structures or systems in place to identify, prevent, or address those inequities. And by inequities, the report is talking about between the the men's and women's basketball tournaments. The results have been cumulative, not only fostering skepticism and distrust about the sincerity of the NCAA's commitment to gender equity, but also limiting the growth of women's basketball and perpetuating a mistaken narrative that women's basketball is destined to be a quote-unquote money loser year after year. And I think it's important that the report couches that in terms of skepticism and distrust about the NCAA's sincerity of its commitment to gender equity, because there's no question about that for people who are looking at this from the inside out, not from the outside in. But in that regard, do you think that any of the senators that the NCAA is going to be targeting in its lobbying campaign are going to read this report. And I'll just say in that regard, when you look at the NCAA's website right now and all its talk about gender equity, I think it's fair to conclude that this Kaplan report has already been placed on that shelf that they were talking about. 
In the hearings that were conducted in Senate Commerce in 2020 and 2021, I think there were four, maybe five, I can't remember. But some female Democrat senators appeared to me to be very receptive to the Title IX issues, the gender equity issues. And what information are they going to get? What they're going to get comes from NCAA and Power Five lobbyists, and they're not going to put what I just read to you in front of these senators. The athletes don't have any lobbyists in Washington, D.C. And in future episodes, I'm going to talk in more detail about the dynamics in the Senate generally, but more particularly on the Senate Commerce Committee. And I think I'm going to do a senator by senator scouting report and fold in how they have handled these hearings. And then also some of the bills that are currently on the table in the Senate that go directly to these federal protections and immunities. And despite the criticism of the NCAA's relationship to gender equity issues in in Title IX, the report comes around to a more hopeful perspective on gender equity going forward. And they say this, and this is going to sound familiar. You know, this is the same talking point we get in so many other contexts. But the report says, while there is near universal support for treating student athletes equitably, there unfortunately is also deep distrust in the NCAA's willingness and ability to make the necessary changes to achieve that goal. We believe, however, that now is the time. Our investigation has revealed broad consensus within the NCAA, from the operational staff to the most senior leadership, from the committees responsible for planning and overseeing basketball championships to the board of governors that it is time for change. The NCAA has already started having important conversations with several of the gender equity issues discussed in this report. Others will require significant work and commitment over the coming years by the NCAA leadership, board of governors, committees, membership staff, and broadcast and corporate partners. But again, all this comes back to the fatal flaw of this report, and that is that you're putting the uh, solution in the hands of the very people who created the problem and have shown historic indifference, if not outright hostility, to gender equity issues and Title IX issues. And I want to close out this episode by talking a little bit about this book that I mentioned, and it's titled College Athletes for Hire. The subtitle is The Evolution and Legacy of the NCAA's Amateur Myth. The book was uh, Uh, published in 1998 and was co-authored by Alan Sack and Ellen Storowski, both academicians. And Professor Storowski has been writing and talking and testifying on athletes' rights issues with an emphasis on gender equity for for decades now. And I I really like what she has to say. In this book, they they talk at some length about the history of Title IX and the NCAA's open hostility to it from the very beginning. And she has some really provocative thoughts on gender equity and the relationship between men's and women's sports. And she traces the history of women's sports and suggests that there's an open question, maybe, that this model that that women's sports has adopted to try to look exactly like men's sports and that that is the ultimate measuring stick in terms of gender equity may miss the mark. And the obsession by some to try to have women's sports operate exactly the way that revenue-producing men's sports operate may really be as harmful as it is beneficial for women's sports because in that framing, women's sports lose their autonomy, they lose their identity, and they are in some ways subjugated 
to the rules that the men have set. And I think that played out in a very subtle way in discussions after this Kaplan gender equity report about whether the men's and women's final fours should be essentially combined and, and played at the same venue to try to raise the exposure and profile of the women's tournament. And in response to that, some very powerful and successful women's coaches and athletics administrators weren't sure that was the best thing for women's basketball. And I think that tapped into what Starowski identifies in her book, that there's this struggle, I think, between equity however you define it under Title IX, yet the preservation of autonomy and that those two things might be in some tension. And that's something I may talk about in another episode when I get a little more into some of the gender equity issues that have shaped the way that people think about college sports in the 21st century. And I'm doing that now in the limited context of the NCAA and Power Five's campaign in the Senate, and it's relevant there right now. But zooming out and looking at this uh, structurally and from a value values-based standpoint. I think what uh, Starowski identified there is really interesting. I just find it fascinating. And then Starowski and Sack trace the history of the regulation of women's sports and the organization of women's sports. And they start with the AIAW, the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, which was chartered, I believe, in 1971. And that's the year before Title IX. And, and and it was done in anticipation of some of the opportunities that might be provided through Title IX. And that the NCAA had really been hands-off with women's sports because they didn't view women's sports as a threat. And remember, before Title IX, the NCAA didn't sponsor any women's sports. It was a boys' club. And then Title IX comes along, and that milestone event had people at the NCAA all of a sudden paying attention, and they were anxious about the impact of Title IX on the boys' club and the revenue streams. And early on, remember, there was a phase-in period for Title IX. I think that it was passed in 72, and then I think it wasn't uh, fully effective until 1978. So there was a lot of positioning and a lot of wrangling there. And in a chapter, chapter seven, titled Athletic Scholarships for Women, there's a section titled Partner or Predator, the NCAA's Transformation to Co-Ed. And they, they talk about how the NCAA's views changed as we headed into the Title IX era. And then the next section after that is the NCAA's opposition to Title IX. But Starowski and Sack talk about two amendments to Title IX that were offered by two of the most powerful senators in the Senate at the time. The first was from Senator John Tower, who was from Texas, a Republican from Texas. And his bill would have completely, not his bill, his, his amendment to Title IX would have completely removed intercollegiate athletics from the scope and jurisdiction of Title IX. That failed. After that, powerful New York Senator Jacob Javits, also a Republican, introduced an amendment that would have allowed programs within a university to exempt themselves from the scope of Title IX if they did not receive federal money. And the thinking there was that if a big-time football program funded that program with private funds and didn't receive any federal money to operate that program, then it would be exempt from 
Title IX. And uh, Starowski and Sack also point out that these very powerful football interests also engaged the White House in, in 1975. And Gerald Ford was the president. He played football at Michigan, I believe. He was a big uh, college football guy. And he got involved behind the scenes at the administrative level to try to promote the interests of the powerful football schools and, and conferences. And the the Javits Amendment was ultimately unsuccessful. And, and then in the 1980s, there was a litigation pathway that was engineered by the NCAA through a small school that had received very little federal money to try to get the Javits program-specific exemptions done through a legal ruling. And the U.S. Supreme Court actually provided that relief. And then a couple of years later, Congress came in and closed that loophole and said, no, there's, there are no program exemptions. This is going to apply to the school as a school. But that amendment to Title IX wasn't put into place until 1987. And, and between 1987 and the present, the NCAA has done what it does best. It forms committees and it has task forces and it formed this gender equity task force in 1992 that was supposed to really shine a light on gender-based discrepancies and inequities in college sports. And it was going to make transformative change. And it did nothing thing of value. And when the Power Five go back to the Senate, are we going to hear from Sedona Prince? Is she going to be called as a witness? Are we going to hear from Professor Storowski? I don't know what her thinking is now on the gender equity issues, but I sure would want to listen to what she had to say. And in that regard, I also think it's important to note, and I've said this in other episodes, and I also talked about this in my blogging, there's a reason that the NCAA went to the Senate, because even though there's been some progress made in terms of the profile, the dem demographic profile of the Senate, it is still a white men's club, and it's an exclusive club. And the same power structures that the NCAA and the big-time football interests went to in the 1970s and 80s to try to defeat Title IX, that same power base is in place right now. Of our 100 senators, only 24 are women. There are only two African-American senators, and there have been only a very small number, I think maybe 10, 12, over the history of the Senate. And just as the powerful football interest efforts in the 1970s and 80s to beat back Title IX, the campaign today to eliminate external regulatory threats run through Republican senators. And that is important because this debate in Congress, particularly in the Senate, has become a partisan debate like so many other issues. And if you are a Democrat, you uh, are open to listening to arguments that promote athletes' rights and welfare. And if you're a Republican, you're NCAA Power 5 all the way, right down the line. In a Republican-controlled Senate in 2019 to 2021, when the NCAA and Power 5 were laying the foundation for their congressional campaign, it all ran through Republican senators like Jerry Moran of Kansas and Marco Rubio of Florida and Roger Wicker of Mississippi and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Lamar Alexander. Alexander of Tennessee and Ted Cruz from Texas. And right now we have a split Senate and the Commerce Committee is split evenly, 14 Democrats, 14 Republicans. And when I start talking about the timing 
of the Power Five's re-engagement with the Senate. We're going to look at what a new Congress might look like after the midterm elections. And I think if the Republicans retake control of the Senate, and most political prognosticators are thinking right now that's going to be the case, it's a whole different ballgame for the Power Five and the NCAA. And they've laid substantial foundation on some of these principles that might get a few Democrats to, to join in. And there are only 16 Democrat women in the Senate. And for this bill, for any bill that gives the NCAA and Power Five what they want, I think they've got to have Democrat women for it to have legitimacy and to be uh, a bill that a Democrat president can sign. And of those 16 female Democrats in the Senate, nine are from Power Five states and five of those women sit on the Senate Commerce Committee, which has frontline jurisdiction over sports issues. I'll just go through the list. You have Kirsten Cinema from Arizona, Tammy Duckworth from Illinois, Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, Maria Cantwell from Washington, and Tammy Baldwin from Tennessee. So if I'm running the chessboard from a purely political strategy standpoint, and you're furthering the interests of the Power Five and the NCAA, those five senators are really your short list, and you really want to work those senators. And the winning argument there is gender equity. And again, I'm going to talk all about that when we come to it, but I really think it's important to get on the table now as the work of this transformation committee is going to play out, that all of this ultimately runs through a political lens because the Power Five, just like the NCAA, can't get what it really wants in terms of control of the regulatory market without a bill from Congress that grants them these federal protections and immunities. And I think it's important to keep a sharp eye on what the message is and who's conveying it and how it is massaged to promote the interests of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. All right, so I will call it an episode. And I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Take care.